Well, this last message in Psalm 23 this morning has a bit of a long title. I figured it's our last one. Let's go out with a bang. So this might be the longest sermon title I've ever had. But I've titled this message this morning, A Crescendo of Hope and the Lens of Faith. A Crescendo of Hope and the Lens of Faith. I'll give you about five more minutes to write that down. A crescendo of hope and the lens of faith. Now, for all my music students in the room and or all of the parents that watch Little Einsteins with their kids, you know that a crescendo is a gradual increase in loudness or intensity. In sheet music, a crescendo is marked. It's signified by this hairpin symbol that lets the composer know that this is the time to have a crescendo for the music to rise, for the intensity to increase, for the sound to gradually culminate in loudness. And that is exactly what we have here at the end of Psalm 23. We have this gradual increase in intensity. I'm not sure if you saw it there, but there's a crescendo at the end of Psalm 23, and it's not a crescendo of sound and music, though this is poetry, but it is, as it says up there on the screen, at the end of Psalm 23, we have this incredible crescendo of hope, a crescendo of hope, a gradual increase of hope. You see, the entire Psalm, Psalm 23, at the end of the day, what we've been looking at really is a description of hope. The hope that all of those who are able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, the hope that those kind of people have. It's the hope of abundant life that Jesus gives. It's the hope of being under God's care. We've been studying this hope, this great hope. The hope that you have everything you need in life, that you you can say like David, I shall not want. The hope that our God is always going to make us lie down in green pastures. He's always going to bring us rest for our weariness. The great hope that He's faithful to lead us beside still waters, to have our thirst quenched by the satisfying water of his spirit. We have, through Jesus, we have this great hope we've looked at that our shepherd is committed to our unrighteousness, so much so that he was even willing to become our our unrighteousness so that he could make us righteous in his eyes through his behalf. The hope of always being led toward righteousness. We have the hope, we looked a couple weeks ago, of of God's comforting presence in the midst of dark and difficult times. We have hope when we walk through the valley. We have the hope that God is with us. We have the hope of his comfort. We have the hope to be able to say, I'm not afraid of evil. God is with me. What great hope. And then lastly, we looked at this great hope that we have even in the presence of our enemies. As our enemy is surrounding us and seemingly able to overpower us, we have this hope that we are more than what? conquerors through Jesus who has loved us. In the Greek, I love it, it's we are super conquerors through Jesus. We are victorious. We have this hope of victory. And then the way David just wraps up this psalm is that hope crescendos. It's this gradual increase of epicness. David says, in my present state, you're anointing me with oil. Then it just builds even more. My cup is overflowing. Then he takes it a step further. Your goodness and your mercy is going to follow me all the days of my life. And it's like, David, how can it get any better than that? And he goes, okay, here's the crescendo. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Talk about a crescendo, a crescendo of hope. You know, hope is such a central theme to the Christian faith. 
Without hope, the Christian faith is always floundering, but with hope, Christians are always flourishing. Hope is a game changer, so much so that we geared our entire Easter launch this, this, this year on, on Easter Sunday around this reality that through the resurrection of Jesus, hope has come alive. And we looked at this verse in 1 Peter 1, where Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We centered Easter around this idea that through the resurrection of Jesus, resurrected hope has come alive. Hope, it's so central to the Christian faith. It's what the gospel has given us. And I love the way that the language is even used here. Hope that we've been begotten again unto. Now, I know that's not the word that we commonly use to talk about birth and new birth. How many kids have you begotten these days? You know, I've begotten a few. All right, how many, you begotten? I'm not begotten, you, be, you know. It's not really the term we use. We talk more about being born, and that's the idea here, though, right? Is that we've been born through Jesus into this hope. Hope, it's so central. We've been born into it. Now, something we all know about a life that we're born into is that we don't get to choose the circumstances into which we are born. We're not able to do that. We're not able to choose necessarily the, the, the orientation of our lives. We're just born into it. We just show up. In fact, the circumstances are set before we even get there. And think of that same truth when it comes to the gospel. Today, if you are born again in Christ, if you have come alive through Jesus, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you don't get to choose whether or not you have hope. It's a central reality. We have been born into this great hope. It's our life now. Our hope is as alive as Jesus, and trust me, he's really alive. And so that's what the Bible teaches in light of this reality of the hope of God. But it's so much more than that, right? Because when you study Scripture further, you understand that hope is, well, it's not just intended to be this thing that we know intellectually, like, I know Jesus is alive. I know I have hope. I know the reality. But biblically, hope is also meant to be felt personally. Have you ever felt that gap in your life, the distance between what you know to be true and what you actually feel to be true in your heart? See, it's a noun. It's a reality. There's a hope that we have in heaven. It's, it's a fact of the matter. It's as real as Jesus being alive. But sometimes we don't have in our hearts the hope we have in heaven. Sometimes there's a gap there. Sometimes those two things are at odds. That's why Peter, or sorry, Paul, he prayed this for the church at Rome. I love this. He said, now may the God of hope, I just love that's even who God is. He's a God of hope. May he fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may, I love this, abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just something that's known intellectually, but something that is abounding in my life personally. Are you abounding in hope this morning by the power of the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to abound in hope? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that it looks like this thing called faith. See, Hebrews 11 one says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. You following me? It's not too hot to follow me? You guys good? All right. Faith, it's the substance of things hoped for. So hope, it's a reality in heaven, but how does hope gain a substance in my life? Well, it's my faith. Faith is the substance. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's describing and understanding faith as a lens 
that sees what's not seen with the naked eye. Because we don't look at the things which are seen, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The things which are seen are temporary. But the things that are not seen, they're eternal. They have to do with our hope. And through the eyes of faith, I get this substance to my hope. I engage with the reality of my hope through the lens of faith. Faith, listen to it this way, faith allows me to see the reality of my hope regardless of my circumstance. Faith allows me to see the reality of my hope in Jesus regardless of my circumstance. It's the evidence of things not seen. I love that. It's evidence when there's no evidence. It's something to see through when there's nothing to see. So Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5-7. Have you seen this? We walk by faith, not by sight. Hope, central to the Christian faith, so much more than knowing it intellectually, but meant to be felt personally, that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How? Well, it's through putting on this lens of faith. Seeing what may not be available to the sight of of the naked eye. And that's exactly what we see from the life of David here in Psalm 23. David is giving this crescendo of hope not necessarily because of his circumstances. It's not that his circumstances are awesome. It's just that David knows something and he's seeing something that goes deeper and beyond what he's walking through. He has these eyes to be able to see the hope that he has through God. This is often the most difficult thing that we can walk through. We, we read verses in the Bible that talk about this incredible hope, but what about when life looks a little bit more like it's spiraling downward? Rather than what Philippians 3 says, the upward call of God. Well, again, it's that lens of faith. In fact, I love that there in Philippians 3 where Paul says that. Paul looks at his life, and when he gauges his life and his journey, he doesn't gain his confidence, and he doesn't gain even his hope from his past track record or his present standing. He says, I'm not perfect yet. I haven't apprehended He says, instead, what I do is I forget the things which are behind, and I press forward to the things which are ahead. And he says this, I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A lot of times we can look at our life through this lens of ups and downs, ups and downs, man. It's just ups and downs. You got an up to, no, I'm on a down, I'm on a down. Shoots and ladders. I went down the chute, okay. Um, I'm going through a darker time today. We talked about mountaintops and valleys. But Paul says, listen, that's not the way we gauge our life as Christians. See, for a Christian, if you look at your life through the lens of faith, you see that just like this psalm, there's a crescendo happening in your life. You might not see it right now. But in your life, in my life, through Jesus, because he's really alive, the track record and the trajectory of our life is headed towards what Paul calls this upward direction. Even though you might feel like it's the up, ups and downs of life, Paul says, no, it's not the ups and downs in life, it's the upward call of God. And again, that's what we see David describing here. David looks at his life through this lens of faith to see the hope that God has given him. And he's able to view three aspects of his life through this lens of faith. He sees what we'll call hope for today, Sometimes that's all we really need is just some hope for today. He sees hope for tomorrow, and then he sees what we all most desperately need, which is hope for eternity. Let's look at each of these one by one in Psalm 23. The first angle that David looks at through this lens of faith is he takes a look at what we called, again, 
hope for today. And through looking through the lens at this hope for today, here's what he, what he says in verse, the second half of verse 5. He says, You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. This is where it starts. David looking at his life, he's viewing the present, and he declares about his God that God anoints his head with oil. Now, remember, this is a sheepy psalm written by a shepherd about God as his shepherd. I know we took a little detour there, and it's kind of started to mesh into language about a host, and we've met God as the shepherd host at the second half of this psalm. But the language that David is using, the poetry that he's putting thought to, it's meant to provoke a metaphor of how a shepherd cares for his sheep. And David knows as an experienced shepherd that a good shepherd cares for his sheep by anointing them with oil. It's part of the role of a shepherd. In the days before deet and bug repellent, a shepherd would create his own concoction, his own mixture, his own home remedy that he would pour of oil that he would pour upon his sheep's head in order to protect and guard and remedy the sheep from insects. Sheep are, are um, vulnerable victims to all sorts of insects and parasites, the different kind of not just surface-level skin kind of bugs and flies, but nasal flies specifically that get all up in their dome piece and mess things up. Like, it gets bad for sheep. There's been records to show that, that some sheep, they get so freaked out and they get so tormented by these internal parasites that they will bang their heads on rocks to try to solve the problem, but will instead kill themselves. And David says, God, like a shepherd... You anoint my head with oil. I don't have to bang my head on the wall. I don't have to shake my, my, my podium or whatever it may be in frustration. God, I have your anointing. Anointing. Now, I know the word anointing is definitely a church word. It definitely depends on your circle, too. For some of you, it's like a serious church word, like anointing. That's an anointed one right there. He's anointed. Now, the word anointing, to anoint, simply means to smear or rub oil. It's like, oh, I didn't, okay, they're anointed. They're smeared with oil. That's what I meant. Someone smeared olive oil on them this morning. Yeah. The idea here of being anointed, David's saying, God, he's smearing this oil. I mean, now, biblically, it was a picture, a symbol specifically of the purpose and power of the Holy Spirit. David here is describing how God anoints his head with oil, and I'm sure he's hearkening back to a time, in the time that he was anointed as the king of Israel. You remember this time? This was customary in the nation of Israel. Oil would be symbolic of the purpose and the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so when God sent Samuel to go anoint the next king of, of Israel, he told Samuel, Samuel, fill your horn with oil. And then 1 Samuel 16 tells us that as David was anointed, it says in 1 Samuel 16 that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And notice this, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. This oil of anointing, symbolic and paralleling the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon David when he became king. Now, what we tend to do with verses like this and ideas like this is we tend to reserve them to special roles and parts and functions in the body of Christ, right? So often in the church today, we have a lot of anointed 
preachers. Like, preachers are the anointed ones in the church. Have you heard him speak? Anointed, right? That's what we say. We're like, he's got the anointing. But when was the last time you said, man, have you seen the way she loves her kids? That's an anointed mom. Anointed. Now we're going, yeah, we've never said that. That's an anointed husband, the way that he loves his wife. I mean, that's an anointed business leader. That's an anointed neighbor. See, scripturally, that's the ideas that we should have. Because scripturally, the anointing of God's Holy Spirit for purpose and power is not reserved to a couple men who stand behind a pulpit and preach. God's Spirit has been been poured out upon all sons and daughters. Amen? Poured out freely. And so we have this language in 2 Corinthians 1. Look at this verse where Paul says, Now he who has established us with you in Christ and has, look at this, and has anointed us, us, is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see the parallel again? I think it's like some 200 times in the Old Testament you have this word anointed, and it's always going hand in hand with the presence and the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, you have been anointed. That God has poured out his spirit upon your life. This is amazing. I love the language it uses. God has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee. In the Greek, you know what that literally means? A down payment. That's awesome. We're going to cash in when we die or when Jesus comes back. Amen? In the meantime, God's like, I got something for you. In the meantime, I'm not going to make this whole Christian thing about what you can try to do at the best of your flesh for me. I'm going to pour out my spirit on your life, and I'm going to give a down payment of things to come, and I'm going to anoint you with my spirit, my spirit. We know Jesus, right before he departed and went to the cross, he was preparing his disciples for his departure, and he was trying to shift their dependence away from having him next to them to the great hope of having his spirit inside of them. When we talk about the spirit of God, we're not talking about some kind of force or energy or, or, or some kind of electricity that emanates from God. We're talking about God himself, God the spirit. We understand God to be a trinity, to be triune, God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. One in their essence, but distinct in their persons. The person of the Holy Spirit of God is who has been poured out on our lives. He who has established us with this, I love this, is God. Um, now, what I want to point out again about David is the fact that he says this. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, we just looked at 1 Samuel 16, where David describes a time where the Holy Spirit came upon him, where God came upon him in power and purpose. But David doesn't say here, you anointed my head with oil. David is talking about a present hope. You anoint my head with oil. Tomorrow, you anoint my head with oil. The idea here is that your past supply of God's Spirit is not meant to be your last supply of God's Spirit. This is the language that we tend to see in Scripture. Um, Here's what I realized. I found this. I think one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to walk with Jesus in the present. Ever face that challenge? Most of the time it's because I'm worried about the future or because I'm living in the past. 
But you have this language all throughout the Bible, especially in Hebrews, that talks about today is the day, right? Listen to his voice. Walk with him here and now. This is Jesus' constant issue with the disciples. They were always ahead of pace, right? He's like, stop, slow down, slow down. I only got 33 years here. I got things I got to do, but chill, all right? I, got, I, I know what I'm doing. Just follow me. Remember the story of Jairus' daughter, right? Jairus' daughter who was dying, and he's saying, Jesus, come on, come, come heal her, please. And he's sprinting ahead, and there's Jesus kind of walking through the crowd. And according to his pace, he was able to heal two people. He healed an 8-year-old girl as well, a 12-year-old girl. This speaks of just, the, just kind of living in the moment, and I think this is one of the hardest things to do. You anoint my head with oil right now. In other words, God, I'm not living off of what you did in my life a week ago. I'm not worrying about where my life is going to go a week from now. You are right here, right now. God, fill me with your spirit. Now, I know there's all sorts of theological hairs that we could split over this, and I'd love to talk about that. I would say that when it comes to our relationship to the Holy Spirit, I would say that this is not one of those issues that we would divide over or even die over. I'll kill you for my doctrine. That's not what we're trying to do here. Maybe it's more something that we would debate over and even decide over and agree to disagree. Uh, My understanding in Scripture is that I am in desperate need every day, every hour, every minute for a fresh filling of God's Spirit. That's, that's the language even we see in the New Testament. We see this idea that as human beings, we, we're prone to, the way Paul says in Galatians, we're prone to go on in the flesh what's begun in the Spirit. I've heard it described this way, that humans are leaky vessels. And so that walk in the Spirit, it, it, it slowly it can start to dissipate, and we start to go on in our own strength. And that's why this is one of the commands we see in the book of Ephesians. This is a command. It says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Don't come under the influence and the power of a substance, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Christians. And he's saying, here's what you need to do. Be filled with the Spirit. In the, in the Greek language, it's be ye being filled with the Spirit. Be ye being. Well, I was filled with the Spirit at youth camp 20 years ago. Awesome. Be filled with the Spirit. There's that tendency to continue in the flesh what's begun in the Spirit. And so here's what the hope, we're talking about the hope. The hope we have for today, is I want you to be reminded of this, is we have the supply of God's Spirit. Let's look at our life right now. Let's look at this moment. I don't care what's happened before today. Right now, as you are in Christ, you stand as a prime candidate for an outpouring of God's Spirit. And he wants to pour out his spirit on, life more than, on your life more than you even want it. But what we need to do is we need to come underneath that outpouring. We need to come before God. And this is the reality that I just want to say that the supply of God's spirit, which needs to be resupplied, we constantly need to come to him and say, God, fill me with your spirit. Empower me. I want to be filled. I want to spend time with you. I want to know you. God, give me the victory. Give me the power to overcome this sin. God, give me the victory. Give me the power to witness and have boldness to proclaim you to my coworkers. I want to say that this only comes from God. This can't be bought. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it cannot be manipulated with a formula. Well, if I do perfect church attendance for the month of December, the outpouring is going to come. Or if I read at this time, and then I pray, then I fast, then I pray, pray fast, then I read a verse, do a somersault, and then I get down, and I face this way. There's no formula. 
The Bible says in Galatians, you receive the Spirit not by works but by faith. We say, Jesus, here I am. And this needs to be, this needs to be understood. You can't get this kids from your parents. God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. You need your own supply of God's Spirit in your life. We can't get this from even like sermons. Now, I pray. I pray God's Spirit anoints my sermons to be able to fill and bless our lives here and whoever's preaching. But at the end of the day, the only opportunity available to us to be anointed by God's Spirit is coming to God himself. Getting on our knees. God, fill me. Getting in God's Word. Anoint my head with oil. I love the way David says it because my cup, God wants to overflow my cup. He doesn't want to just in your life meet your expectations, get you to the, to the marker that you think. He wants to overflow your life so that it can pour into others. So here's a question you want to do today, or a, a kind of an exercise. We want to look at our lives, and we want to evaluate the emptiness or the overflow of our life, of our cup. How's your cup? Is it full? Is it empty? Is it half full, half empty? We don't have to get into that, okay? But where are you at with the Lord? What do you need to do? You come to him and he fills your cup. He wants to pour out his spirit. Jesus said, God is a good father. If you ask him for his spirit, he's going to give you his Holy Spirit. And it doesn't just have to be a past reality. Through the lens of faith, you can see the hope you have for today, which is the present supply of God's spirit. Amen? The second thing we see here is this next verse where David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So we see this crescendo of hope happening. First, it's hope for the present. I have the promise and the power of God's spirit to be poured out on my life, to walk with him, to know him, to be bold for him. And then David looks at what he calls all the days of his life. So he looks at his right now, but then he looks at his tomorrow. And he says, ahead of me, all the days of my life, I surely know that goodness and mercy are going to follow me. Now, I think what's really interesting about David's hope for the future is, is this word, surely. Okay? If I could give you a list of things that I'm sure are going to happen in my life, it would be a very small list, right? Like, and we, we know that God has plans for our life, right? I love that verse, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. And we're like... That's awesome. Can I know them? Like, you know them. You know them. Can I know them? Right? For I know. That's the, that's the way that God says, I know the plans. And sometimes that's enough to know that God knows. Amen? God, you know. Okay. If you know, we're good. And listen, sometimes, sometimes God will reveal his plans. He will give us vision. He'll give us direction. He'll give us a calling. The Bible says in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we should go before God and say, what have you called me to do? What's, what's the purpose of my life? How, what, what's your plan? Show me what to walk in. And sometimes, sometimes God reveals his plan, but most of the time, <laughs> most of the time he doesn't. Most of the time he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got its own issues. You can, you can barely handle today's issues. Why are you trying to double down with tomorrow's issues as well? Today's hard enough. Stop trying to do like this BOGO special, all right? Buy one day of worries, get another one free. Don't do that. You will be exhausted. You will be broke, okay? Live right now, and as you follow me, listen, I, I, I got the future. I'm your shepherd. I'm going to lead you. But I love this. David says, 
I might not know entirely what the future holds, but there's one thing that David says, I'm assured of. The word surely there, you could write nearby it if you'd like, absolutely, definitely. Or you could write, oh yeah, if you'd like to write that in your Bible. You don't have to. I did. Oh yeah. You ever been so sure to something that's what you said? Are you sure? And you're like, yeah. After service, it was 98 degrees in there. Are you sure? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, surely. Absolutely. In fact, in Hebrew, this idea of surely, it literally means without question. How about this? Without the danger or the risk of loss. There's absolutely, what David, is, what David is speaking over his future, all the days of his life, the rest of his life, what he's saying is there is no danger of or even risk of what God has promised not happening. Talk about security. Anybody need some of that in your life? I need that. In, in, in a life that's mostly filled with ambiguity and uncertainty, God gives us some solid, sure certainty. Here's something you need to know. You may not have your whole life figured out. You might not know where you're headed all the days of your life. Here's the good news. I know. Here's one thing you can be assured of. No matter where you go or find yourself, because you are my sheep and I am your shepherd, I'm going to chase you down with goodness and mercy. Everywhere you go, my grace is going to chase you. My mercy is going to follow you. My goodness, my, my faithfulness is going to pursue you. What hope? In fact, this word follow, your goodness and mercy shall follow me, it, it doesn't just kind of mean like, um, you know, you're, you're following a car, you're kind of getting there. The idea is like a pursuit, uh, like, like, a, uh, like a detective following the trail, pursuing the trail of, of his suspect, and, and he's on the case, and he's on the hunting. God says, here's the deal. When it comes to your future, when it comes to your life, let's, let's let this just be resolutely cemented into our hearts this morning. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. No matter where you find yourself next week, a year from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, God is going to be there. And he's going to be there with these twins. Goodness and mercy, pursuing us. Now, I think it's important that God does this, um, especially the idea of pursuing us, mainly because of how prone we are to get lost. Anybody else? I don't just mean with directions, okay? I mean with following Jesus and directions, but mostly with following Jesus. You know, I, I think this is the kind of maybe like language we need to start using a little bit more in our conversations. I think it's important for us to emphasize the fact that we were lost and now we've been found. Praise Jesus. Thank you, God. Do you ever find yourself needing to be refound? I got lost again, God. <laughs> right? It's like the he leaves the 99 for the one. You're like, he does that for me every day. It's not just my past testimony. It's my present testimony. The reality is this, it's our future testimony. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Such a tendency to get off track. Such a tendency to go astray. It's not even, God, what I want to do. Paul says in Romans 7, what I really want to do, what I really want to do, I find myself doing the opposite, God. Walking away from you, getting lost, getting caught up in sin, Lord, it's not my desire, but it seems to be my default apart from you. God says, it's okay. I know. I have these, Charles Spurgeon calls them, I have these like sheepdogs 
called mercy and goodness. And what the sheepdogs do is they make sure that the sheep, as they get off track, they, they, they stay in the pack and that they're continually led to the shepherd. If you have gotten off track today and you have wandered away from Jesus, I want you to know that God is pursuing you, but he's not pursuing you with frustration. He's not pursuing you with anger. He's not pursuing you with disappointment. He's pursuing you with these two sheepdogs. Mercy and goodness. Do you know the Bible says that it's actually goodness that leads a man to repentance? It's not judgment and, and God's consequence that's going to make you go, Lord, I'm so sorry, I want to stay close to you. No, it's his love that casts out all fear. This is, this is the truth of God. And right now you're unsure of this because you're like, well, then why is God disciplining me so much in life as I've walked away from him? Because he loves you and he's good. And that's what a loving father does for his kids. Discipline is not disapproval. It's love. Come on, you've seen that kid going buck wild in the grocery store. I mean, we all have them too. But, but if you see, you've seen the parents who just kind of let it happen. And you feel, not for the parents, you feel for the kid. And Paul says in Hebrews that when, when that happens, there's a sense in which a child's almost illegitimate. It's an illegitimate child. So the discipline that God is giving you in your life right now because you're running from him, it's not because he disapproves of you, it's because he loves you and he has a better plan for you. So he's letting that thing break down because he's good. And he's so good, he won't let you continue with your plan. He's got a much better one. So he's telling you right now, he's telling you no because he's got a much better yes. With mercy and goodness, he pursues us. What hope for tomorrow? I don't have all the days of my life figured out. Here's one thing. We can be like David and say, but here's one thing I'm sure of. Wherever I find myself, I know God's mercy and his goodness is going to be chasing me down. Amen? And then lastly, lastly, David says, somewhere in here, there it is. And I, here's the crescendo, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. So David talks about hope for today, hope for today, God's spirit available to work in my life today. It's always in the present. God is always available to me. Walk with him in the present. I have this great hope for tomorrow. I might be unsure of what the rest of my life holds, but one thing I can be sure of, God is always going to be pursuing me all the days of my life. And then I have this great hope for ever, for eternity. David says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David talks a lot about God's house in the Psalms. It's kind of one of his favorite themes. Um, he's got a handful of themes. One of them certainly is the glory and the wonder of being in God's house. It's Psalm 26, 8, where David says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. Growing up in church, this confused me. Especially because I was told that the, my Lutheran church building was God's house. I remember thinking, like, God's got a lot of bathrooms. Where's the kitchen? Where's the bedrooms? Right? I mean, I didn't really understand. God's got one thing that God does not tolerate in his house is running. Don't ever run in God's house. And especially now that we do church in the cafeteria, that'll freak your kids out. We're going to God's house today. Is God a lunch lady? I don't get it. What's going on? This is confusing. God's house, God's house. Now, this language of God's house, it, it speaks about God's dwelling. We know that 
that when God created the world, he created Adam and Eve, there was no separation between where God dwells and man dwells, right? There was a union there. Adam walked with God in the coolness of the day. Through sin, there's been a separation that has occurred. And in Israel, it was only through certain ceremonial practices that God's presence could be accessed, that God's house could be entered. That's what David is speaking about when he says God's house. He says, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. This would be the temple or the tabernacle where God would manifest himself. David's saying is, God, the place that I love to be the most is with you. It's where you are especially present. Present. Now, we understand in Scripture that there's a difference between God's omnipresence, omnipresence, always present everywhere. Okay, God doesn't have to, like, beam to places or take, you know, uh, like United Airlines and have a horrible flight. God, He can be in all places all at once. So David says in Psalm 139, God, where can I go from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're everywhere I go, you're there. That's what Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, omnipresence. But there's a difference between God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence, where God says, I'm, I'm especially near. Come on, we know this too, right? There's a, the way that we can understand it too is that there's a difference between proximity and presence. Like there's times where you're with your kids, but you're not with your kids, where I'm with my kids, but I'm not present. Like right now, you're on Twitter or something, I don't know. You're here but you're not here. That's okay, right? Come back, but present. It speaks of God's attention. It speaks of God's manifest presence, where his glory would dwell, where he would make himself known. We see God reveal himself, in the, certainly in the temple to Moses, we saw that David is saying, this is the place I want to be. He says it so much so in, in Psalm 84, 10. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousands elsewhere. I know you're thinking of that 90s worship song too. Good one. Better is one day in your courts. Okay. He says, look at this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. God, I love so much to be with you that if it means I I just get to stand in the doorway and see you from a distance and be a doorkeeper in your house, I'm better with that than to not be here at all. Now, there's some people who feel that way even about church. I love that. People who show up here early and they want to serve. They say, man, I'll just, whatever I can do, I'm so excited to be in God's presence today at church. I'll hold a door if I have to. I'll hold a child if I have to. Whatever it is, God, I will even be in children's ministry in the house of my God and to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It speaks of a heart's cry to be with God. We know what David says in Psalm 27. I just want to show you these themes. David says, one thing I've desired of the Lord. That I, will, that I will seek. This is his desire. He goes, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. God, if I could just be with you, this is my desire. What David is essentially saying is, God, I would really love for your house to be my home. I want your house to be my home, God. I would love to just dwell with you forever. God, I know that sin has separated me from you, but if there was any way that I could be more than just a guest in your house, but if I could make myself at home with you and move right in, and then Jesus comes on the scene. This is exactly what Jesus promises. He's speaking to, the, to, to some Jewish Pharisees. He's speaking to those in the cultural time who saw themselves as, as closer to God than anyone else. 
And he starts to talk about things like, hey, you got to know the truth in order to be set free. And they go, set free. And they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Which is Jesus is like, well, read your Bible. Read your history. It's actually happened. But then Jesus makes this statement. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Okay, fine. You're going to act like you were never a slave to any sort of earthly empire. Here's the, the biggest slave of all. It's the empire of sin. And if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. You're bound by sin. And here's the sad news. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He's speaking about the gospel. He's speaking about the fact that apart from Jesus, we were slaves of sin. We did not even deserve to stand at the door in God's house. We ran from God's house. We were dwelling in what David says, the tents of wickedness. But the Bible tells us this, that God himself came and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory through the Messiah, through Jesus. And Jesus, he calls all to come to him. And he says this in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the way. And what is the context there? He's talking to his disciples about God's house. I'm the way to God's house. I'm how you get there. I'm how God's house becomes your home. I'm how God's presence becomes your hope. He tells his disciples, don't be disturbed. Don't be troubled. I'm going away. But in my father's house, there's many mansions. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, how do we get there? He says, it's through me, through Jesus. That, that's the hope we have forever. We right now are finding ourselves in a place where we got to employ that lens of faith because most of the time where we're currently dwelling is discouraging the hope of where we're going to be dwelling. Amen? It's like, God, what I'm going through is keeping me from seeing where you're going to bring me. It's hard. But listen, this is the truth of the hope of the gospel, that through Jesus, God's house becomes your home. In fact, Revelation wraps up. It gives us a a sneak peek to the end of all things at the end of Revelation. And John says this about the new heavens and the new earth. It says in Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, then I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, here's the language, ready? Behold, the tabernacle of God, the house of God, the dwelling of God, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God will himself be with them and will be their God. See the presence of God, what we ultimately need. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. There's no death in God's house. There's no crying or sorrow in God's house. There shall be no more death pain for the former things have passed away than he who sat on the throne said behold I make all things new this is our hope the hope that we have through Jesus so for review we have hope for today it's the supply of God's spirit we have hope for tomorrow no matter where you end up in the, all the days of your life you have the promise that God is always going to be pursuing you with his two sheepdogs mercy and goodness keeping us in the flock keeping us near to Jesus, and lastly, this hope for eternity. We have the hope of God's home being our, God's house being our home. 